We read scripture this afternoon from 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We read the chapter and we take as our text verses 8 through 11. We hear the inspired word of God. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take our text, as I stated, from verses 8 through 11. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the believer is constantly under attack. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter addresses the fact that the saints are pilgrims and strangers in the midst of this world. And as such, he holds before them the fact of the struggle that is theirs as they walk and as they live the Christian life. There are struggles, there are pressures that constantly face believers. They're going to suffer persecution because their home is above. And they're called to live in a world that's hostile to them. And so the apostle takes time throughout the epistle carefully to make application to all of the different aspects of life 
marriage, the workforce, life with Christians, life with the world, applying all of the different aspects of our lives to God and to his word and to the manner in which we're to live. But really all of the calling of believers can be summed up here in the words of our text. We find ourselves in the midst of an intense spiritual battle that involves the devil. And the devil is a most formidable adversary. Our enemy is not a minor one. Our enemy is the devil. And the passage here identifies him as a roaring lion who's walking about seeking whom he may devour. That's the picture that's given. The devil is the chief enemy of the church. He's the captain of the hosts of darkness. And we don't minimize his impact, and we don't minimize his influence also in our lives and in the life of the church. But as we heed this admonition, God sets before us, too, the wonderful hope of victory, the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We take as our theme, resisting our adversary. Noting, first of all, the adversary. Secondly, the resistance. And finally, the victory. Your adversary, the devil, we read here in verse 8. Now, who is the adversary? The devil originally was created as one of the good angels. By virtue of his creation, he was the head of the good angels. And he stood with all of the angels then in a state of righteousness. But the sovereign decree of God of election and reprobation did not only affect mankind, it also affected the angels. And as a result then, there are elect angels who stand in glory by virtue of their original righteousness. There also are reprobate angels who have fallen, as did Satan. And such is what happened to Satan. He was the head of the angels, but he rebelled against God. He rebelled against God in pride, seeking to find and get a place on the throne. He wanted to be God. And as a result then, many angels fell with him, and the devil then and his demons constitute then those who have been banished from heaven and now await final judgment when they will be sentenced to banishment in hell. Now this captain of the fallen host of angels has many names in the Bible. Here we have two names that are given, devil and adversary. The name devil comes from a name that literally means to slander or to falsely accuse. And we find throughout the devil slandering, falsely accusing the saints. He's an adversary. So as one who falsely accuses, he's an adversary. And that word refers to someone who is an opponent in a lawsuit and brings an accusation, but that accusation is unjust. And that's what the devil is constantly doing. He's bringing accusations against God's saints that are not just, that are slander. He hates God. He hates godly men. He hates the angels. And the Bible calls him a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Now these words describe the character and the nature of the work that the devil takes up. He's an adversary of God and the saints, as well as the church. If we just think about it, already in paradise, how did he do that? He slandered God, 
But when he came to Adam and Eve, and specifically first to Eve, what did he imply? He implied that God had lied, that God had not told Eve the whole truth. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 5, and 6. He slandered the name of God. The devil slandered Christ while he was on earth, persuading the Jews and Pilate to accuse him of blasphemy. And so they did. Even though they knew fully Jesus is God, yet they slandered him. They accused him of blasphemy, and finally they crucified him on that accusation. The devil brings charges against God's saints, charges that are not true, charges that are evil, that cannot be substantiated. For instance, he appeared before the God of heaven and earth to bring a charge against Job. And remember the charge he brought against Job. He said to God, the only reason Job is serving you is for money and for animals. That was slander. He's saying the only reason Job is serving you is because there's a prophet to him. And he's just doing it then selfishly. And that's what the devil does. He slanders the people of God before the world as well. He tries to persuade the world that the people of God are radical. They're narrow-minded. They're bigoted. They're worthy of being driven out of the world. You can't trust them with children. You can't trust them in terms of education. And tragically, he succeeds in convincing the world that the saints are a threat. And therefore, they ought to be put out of the world. They ought to be killed. They ought to be attacked. And so the world often does that with wrath and with fury, taking children even away from Christian parents. The devil also, though, slanders Christians in their consciences. That is, he comes to us and he tries to convince us that we're such great sinners that we can't be worthy of salvation. And so he goes to work on us and he tries to tell us, you can't think that you're a Christian. You can't believe that you're a follower. Look what you did yesterday. Look at how you conduct yourself. And so he brings to our consciousness these accusations, and he tries to get us to focus on our unworthiness. And that's slander, because while we know that we're sinners, and we know that we're grievous sinners, even chief of sinners, nevertheless, we know that the cross of Jesus Christ is ours, and that through the wonder of the cross, those sins have been forgiven. Anything else is a lie. We are righteous in Christ. But the devil tries to shake that faith. He tries to sow seeds of distrust, seeds of doubt, in the place of peace and quietness. The effectiveness of the devil's tactics is that he's a spirit. We can't see him. We can't tell where he is. He roams about the earth in a manner that is unseen, and then he attacks in ways that we would not expect. As a spirit, he has access to our thoughts, to our minds. He knows what's going on within our thoughts. He can come and he can plant seeds of doubt. He can plant seeds of pride, seeds of lust, seeds of envy, seeds of doubt, seeds of fear. And he succeeds so often in bringing us then into temptation. So that rather than walking in fellowship with God, we walk in rebellion against God. And we give in to those works of the devil. As a spirit, he often doesn't go on his own. He has a whole host of servants. He's not able to be everywhere present, but the devil and his host of demons go to work. And so through the history of the church and through the history of the scriptures, we find his 
effective labors. He is very effective. He attacked Job. He attacked Jesus Christ. He personally entered into the heart, we read, of Judas Iscariot. He makes men his servants. And by doing so then, with his thousands of demons and fallen angels who serve him, he tempts them and he leads then people astray. Now Peter knew the power. He knew the effectiveness of the devil. Peter's not writing in the abstract. You remember who Peter is. Your children remember Peter. Sometimes we laugh at Peter because we read about the things Peter said and we think, Peter, why did you say that? Peter was somewhat, at times, spontaneous. By this time in his life, Peter knew his weakness and he had learned some needed humility. Peter, by this time, had been through the incident where he tried to walk on water and he succeeded for a time, but then, remember, he began to look down and doubt and he immediately began to sink. And it was only by a wonder of grace that Jesus was able to deliver and to save him. He knew how quickly the devil could get in his mind there and cause him to begin to doubt and to become fearful. He proudly had told men that he would not deny Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to leave. You're going to deny me. Peter said, no, others may do it, but I'm not going to do it. There's no chance that I'm going to leave my Lord. I'm going to stay with him faithful. And then you know what happened. So quickly... He feared for his life and he denies Jesus three times in a matter of just a few hours. And after having experienced that, the work of the devil on him, he was worthless. He couldn't be a disciple no longer. And therefore, yeah, he left. He returned to fishing and figured that he was resigned just to go back to fishing. But then Jesus pursued him. And Jesus called him back and restored him again in office, assuring him of forgiveness. Later, Peter created division in the church when... He separated from the Gentiles who were eating and made such a scene that Paul had to publicly admonish him for his activity and his action. Peter knew the power of the devil. He knew how easily and quickly the devil could work within him to lead him astray. And now he warns the saints by the inspiration of the Spirit. And he does so in a very startling way. He compares the devil to a roaring lion who's walking about, seeking whom he may devour. That's a significant comparison because the people of Peter's day would have been familiar with lions. Wild lions roamed the areas in which they lived, and they were fearful of those lions. They knew the damage those lions could do. And so Peter uses now those lions as a comparison to the devil in order to say something about the mannerism of the devil and the tactics of the devil. And so we ask ourselves, what do we know about lions and how does that apply to the work of the devil? Well, first of all, a lion is sneaky. Lions are very sneaky. They're subtle. A lion's not going to attack during the daylight, but a lion is going to wait till dusk, till it's about dark. And then he's going to sneak up and he's going to try to get his prey. Because a lion is not as fast as other animals. Other animals easily can outrun him and therefore he has to rely then on his cunningness, his sneakiness in order to lie in wait and then to jump on his prey. And so the devil stalks under the cover of darkness. The devil, like a lion. And this is why God calls us, walk in the light. You are children of the light. Don't walk in darkness. Who's lurking in the darkness? The devil. And the devil is there trying to get us to fall prey to the ways of sin. Walk in the light where you can more easily see and where you will be aware 
And so we, adults, young people, are warned, keep out of so-called lion country. Stay away from those areas where the lions would be tempted to lurk. And be aware of temptation. We pray. Lead us. Preserve us. Keep us from temptation. Lions use deception. They use ambush. That's how the devil deceived Eve and Adam. He came subtly. He stepped closer and closer, coming to them in the form of a serpent, talking with them until he got really, really close. And then he was able to bring them into temptation. A lion gets really, really close to his prey. The prey doesn't even think he or she or it is in danger. And then all of a sudden they get pounced on. And so it can be with us. We think we're safe, but we're not paying attention. We're not looking around. And pretty soon, so quickly, the devil uses a suggestive ad, something on our phone, some email, some text, and stirs up our lust and pounces on us. And before we know it, we've given into temptation. And we look back and we say, What happened? We weren't watching, we weren't praying. And the devil then made us his menu for the day. He allowed us to have fun, to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season and devoured our lives. We weren't sober. We weren't vigilant. He also sometimes surrounds and attacks. A pride of lions, that is a group of lions, will spread out and surround an animal that is bigger. For instance, an elephant. They can't take that elephant down Alone, but if they get a number of them, they can close in, they can bite, they can claw, they can jump, and eventually they can take down that elephant after it's worn out. And so the devil goes to work. If he can't make a quick kill, he can't get in for a quick temptation. He slowly works on us. He weakens us over a period of time. Pretty soon we're not reading the Bible. We're not praying. We're living our life rather carelessly. And then he takes us down and leads us into ways that we then are tempted. The lion is an expert at camouflage, and so is the devil. The lion is easily concealed in the grass, and his color hides him as he hunts. The Bible talks about the devil, a master of disguise, so subtle that he even transforms himself as an angel of the light. He acts as though he's someone that's on our side, looking out for our well-being. That's how he came to Adam and Eve trying to help them, trying to help them be like gods, trying to assist them. He makes what is dangerous look appealing in our lives. God says, flee. And the devil says, no, it's not really so bad. He lies. And he tries to make those sinful things look appealing to the point that pretty soon we begin to become attracted to it. And pretty soon we take hold of it. And so we have to be alert. Worldly music. A lack of respect for the Bible, maybe. Perhaps criticisms of the Bible that then begin to become more intense. When we play with fire, we often get burned. Now, there are some who survive lion attacks, but generally those who survive have serious scars as a reminder. And so it is spiritually. We fall into temptation. We walk in ways that we ought not. There's consequences for our sins, sometimes that we have to live with for the rest of our lives. Scars constantly reminding us how weak we are and how 
dependent we are upon God and upon the wonder of his grace. A lion is hungry. He's never satisfied. He always wants more. And so insatiable at times is the appetite of a lion that a lion will even eat his or her own cubs so that nothing is safe from a lion. They'll attack day or night, whatever it takes to resolve their hunger. The devil is never satisfied. The devil always wants more. And the devil is always desiring the destruction of God's people. He wants to bring them down. And he's active. We go to the zoo sometime as children. We see lions and they're just laying around. And they look so inactive. We know, however, that they can't be trusted. And even the keepers of the zoo learn that. That they need to watch everything that they do. And if they look away for a moment so quickly that lion could kill them and bring them down. And so it is with the devil. The devil is not lying around. The devil is watching. The devil is looking. The devil is eager to attack and to pounce on those who are unsuspecting. And the devil is never satisfied. He's always wanting to expand his territory, always wanting more. And he has others who are going to help him, others who are going to assist him and serve him so that he attacks as the head of the fallen demons who together are seeking to destroy as much as they can. They're cruel. Lions are cruel. They kill when they have opportunity. So is the devil. He targets the weak. He targets young. He targets those who are stragglers. He attacks when individuals are down. He kicks when we're weak. If we're straying from the shepherd, we're in danger. And as the devil eats, how does he eat? The devil or the lion, a lion will go for the heart of an animal first and then work its way to the head and work its way down. And that's what the devil tries. The devil goes for your heart. The devil wants your heart. The Bible says out of the heart are all the issues of life. The heart is what we need to guard. The devil goes after our heart. And after that, he goes to our head. False teaching, false doctrine, worldly philosophy, so that we are to be vigilant and realize the manner in which the devil operates. The devil, in all of his power, is one that is suited for the work to which he's for the work that he takes up. He is powerful, and he knows the word of God. He knows the word of God better than you or I do. He could pass any examination that any of our ministers have submitted to at classes or at synod. He knows all the texts. He knows how they're used. He can quote the Bible. And he doesn't forget with age like we do. We become forgetful, not the devil. His memory is as good today as it was 6,000 years ago when he first approached Adam and Eve in the garden. And he knows you better than you know him. He knows what arguments to use. He knows what weaknesses you have. He knows how quickly he can trip you up with your pet sins. And he's out to destroy your faith. And he's out to do it with everything at his disposal. As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That's the devil. And that's the foe then. This devil, this lion from hell, is constantly prowling and he's got his eye on you and on me. He's not interested in the world. He's already got them. He's already taken down those who are his allies. 
Those who are sleeping in church, those who are only going to church for a show, those who conduct themselves with outward obedience just for personal gain, he doesn't have to deal with them. He's already got them. But he's interested in the child of God who's fleeing to Christ, who's walking with a broken and a contrite heart, who stands firm and immovable in the truth. He's after that one. That one who condemns the world and tries to flee from it. They're the objects of all of his wrath. And he seeks to destroy. And so our text says, whom resist, verse 9. We are called individually to resist temptation. And that means that we need to avoid everything that would give occasion for the enemy to tempt us. It seems as, it seems as though we live in an age when sin is glossed over. Sins are taken so lightly in our day, and they trouble, tragically us, so little. And so we need to pray for the grace to be more and more sensitive to sin, sensitive to bad language, sensitive to that which is contrary to God's word. We seldom think in terms of the real threat of the devil and his demons. And sin sometimes even tragically can be kind of abstract for us. We'll confess sin in general, but we really don't think specifically of any specific things really that we are guilty of. How different that is than, for instance, during the time of Martin Luther. Martin Luther so vividly pictured the devil at times that there's stories of him taking his ink blotter and throwing it at the devil, picturing him in his house, picturing the temptations he was bringing against him. And while we can chuckle about that, we would wish today that people were as deeply troubled by and conscious of the attempts of the devil to bring us into temptation. Resisting starts with knowing about his existence, knowing about the tactics that he uses, knowing how cunning he is, knowing how clever and crafty he is, and also knowing that he's not only about us, he's also using my nature so that He's using my sinful nature. And we need to be aware of it so that we don't minimize our sin, so that we don't minimize and try to cover up our own sinfulness, but that we confess it and that we acknowledge it. Now, knowing God and knowing his word strengthens us in that resistance. Jesus stood against the devil. And how did Jesus stand over against the devil in his temptations? You children remember he turned to the word every time to the book of Deuteronomy, strikingly. And what is the book of Deuteronomy? It's a book that emphasizes that God's people must dwell in safety alone. It emphasizes the glory of God and the necessity of living an antithetical, a separate life from the ways of sin. And every time Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy over against the devil, the devil cannot stand before the word. The word sends the devil in flight. We need to be fully armed then with the armor of God. And chief of which is the word, that word of the spirit, the sword of the word. And that power alone is able to drive away. With the word of God and the gift of faith, the devil is thwarted and the devil is driven away. And so we pray for that grace. We pray for that grace to stand over against temptation, whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The devil cannot stand before God, and the devil cannot stand before the word of God. But as God's children live close to their shepherd, they as sheep then 
know the protection of the shepherd. And they live in the consciousness of his word and his spirit. And as the devil comes raging and the devil comes roaring and threatening, they cling by faith to Christ and to the hope that is ours in him. Sober, vigilant. What is that getting at here? To be sober is to exercise self-control. It's the opposite of one who's drunk. One who's drunk, one who's staggering through a jungle that's infested with lions, not aware of his surroundings, is in trouble. He's out of touch with reality. He's confused. He's no position to think about danger. He's not watching. He's not praying. And that one is going to be easily and quickly devoured. Spiritually, the same thing is true. One who's staggering through life, focused only on my pleasure, my entertainment, focusing on what will be good for me, drunk with the things of the world, out of touch with spiritual realities, oblivious to the dangers around him, unconscious of the adversary that's lying in wait, quickly and easily, is taken prey. One who's sober is one who knows the truth of God's word, one who prays for the grace of the Spirit to apply it to his life and knows that word especially as it speaks to him concerning his own weakness, concerning the fact of the strength that is his alone in God and his word, about the threat of the devil, about the world and the temptations of the world, about the temptations of his own flesh, so that he knows who he is, a sinner that's saved by grace. He knows the wonder of the strength that is his in God. He knows the world in which he lives, a world that is given over to sin and darkness. And he knows the devil is raging, seeking to destroy. And he knows his calling before God to maintain that sober, antithetical life for the glory of God. And being sober, he's able to be vigilant. A sober man who's going through the jungle is going to advance one step at a time, alert, looking for danger, watching The sober one isn't proud. He's not drunk with the worldliness and the pleasure that pervades this world. But he lives in the knowledge of the truth of Scripture as that truth of Scripture now guides and governs his or her life. And so in his home, in his schooling, in his work, in his relation to authority, in his country, he's alert to the enemies of his soul. And he advances cautiously, watchful, Intent to spot the enemy before that enemy spots him. And before that enemy seeks to destroy him unprepared. Peter, as he's working through this epistle, is addressing precisely these saints. They're in the midst of this world. They're living as those who are in the world but not of the world. And as a result, their way and their life is challenging. They're persecuted. They're opposed. But as they're walking and advancing through life, they're doing so as those who are strangers, who are pilgrims, who are vigilant. And literally that means not falling asleep. They're aware of the circumstances and they know the enemy, they understand his cunning, they recognize the danger, and they are looking to God for the strength and the grace that alone can preserve and keep them. Be sober, be vigilant, steadfast in the faith. Faith is a gift from God. God gives the gift of faith to his saints by which they're united to God. And a child of God has no strength in himself, but being united to God now, his strength 
is by virtue of that faith. He would never be able to defend himself. Of himself, he'd be drunk. He'd be sleeping. But faith is the God-given means by which we receive power and strength as those united to Christ. And now by the power of Christ, we're strengthened. We find Jesus as our only hope in the midst of this world. As we walk through this life, we cast all our cares on him, knowing that he's the one that's caring for us. I am weak, but he is strong. Of myself, I would be taken in by temptation. But he is able to preserve me, and he is able to keep me. And we then press on by faith. To be able to resist, whom resists steadfast in the faith, is all of grace. We would never do so of ourselves, but it's because that bond of faith exists that God is preserving and keeping. And think of Job. The devil's point was that he could sever Job from God. And God said, no, you can't. And the book of Job is to demonstrate the devil cannot sever a believer from his Lord. The devil cannot cut that bond of faith. God will preserve and keep every one of his own. We find then Jesus Christ and the word of God to be our protection and our strength. And we resist steadfast in the faith. As Jesus Christ stood against the devil, he did so not merely as an example, but now he lives within us. And that power that is within us is stronger than the powers that are against us. Christ, by his spirit, living within us, is at work. And faith reveals itself in a knowledge and a confidence. A knowledge, a certain knowledge of God in Jesus Christ, and the confidence that he is my Savior. And he will keep me, and he will preserve me. So that as I walk through the perils of life, my faith doesn't waver. I cling to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And by faith I obtain a clearer and more full knowledge of who I am, my own weakness, the victories that are in Jesus Christ, and my complete dependence upon him and upon his word. And through Christ I shall do valiantly. Through Christ I have the victory. This is the wonder that the apostle here by the inspiration of God, is addressing to his saints. You and I can't do this of our own. We're weak. And again, Peter knew this well. He could not. He knew it was all of God and God's grace. We learn a certain amount of suffering that we must bear. Peter learned that. He was scarred. He was bruised. We are scarred. We get bruised because temptation, struggles come our way. But the Lord of heaven and earth is in control. And he never gives more than we can bear. And that's the beautiful encouragement that we read of, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Peter here is echoing that promise. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. 
The apostle puts it this way, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're inclined sometimes, especially as teenagers, to think that our situation is unique. Nobody understands the pressures that we face, that the difficulties we have at school perhaps or with friends, the difficulties at work, the challenges that we face today. And admittedly, teenagers, young people face challenges today unlike anything that we, your parents, ever experienced. But we're inclined sometimes to think that our way is unique. Nobody can understand. Nobody can understand or fathom what we're going through. And to think then that we're all alone. We're reminded here that there is no temptation that has fallen you except that which is common to men. In other words, all the temptations that you faced are the same as your parents faced and others faced. But even more than that, all the temptations you faced are the same as what your Lord Jesus Christ faced. He faced. As saints, we stand shoulder to shoulder with our Lord Jesus Christ who lived in this world. He knew what it was to be tempted, to be not chase. He knew what it was to be experiencing the reality of never marrying. He knew what it was to never have a child, to never enjoy the sexual relationship. Jesus was tempted in every regard like as we. We can't even fathom the extent to which as a man he faced those temptations and those lies from the devil. And yet he withstood. He pressed on. And he did so for you and for me. So that by his spirit now, we go forward more than conquerors through he who is our Lord and our Savior. Reflecting on these words, Peter says, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, you're not alone. These afflictions, these troubles are taking place now in your brothers and sisters in the midst of this world. Now that needs to be understood too in light of Colossians 1.24, which is a striking passage where Jesus expresses the fact that there is some suffering that's been left behind for his children. Not in the sense of suffering for atonement. All that was necessary for atonement has been accomplished. But that which we will endure as the body of Christ for Christ's sake. And these sufferings now are being fulfilled. They're being realized through the saints. Sufferings of Christ that Christ is experiencing now through his body. The church. And as we live in the midst of this world, then there are afflictions, there are sufferings that are necessary for the body. God ordained them as a necessity in order to fill the fullness of the suffering of Jesus Christ. This means, first of all, then, that God has determined a definite number of sufferings and temptations through which we must pass. For the good of the church, God ordained that. Even the devil and his demons, that means, are in the hand of a sovereign God who is controlling all of these things for the good of his church. But also it means this. God will always give grace so that we will never have to face more than we are able. When we fall into temptation, we can never make up excuses. We can never blame God. We did it. We were responsible. It was not God's fault. God gives grace and God gives strength. We look away from God. We look away from his grace. We fall. But also this, we are not alone. The saints who have gone before us testify of the victory and the triumph of faith. And that faith is ours. So that the saints who have gone before us, 
Daniel and Joseph, David and Peter. These saints testify of the triumph of their faith, walking through troubles, through struggles, through difficulties, and yet the victory they were able to know through their Savior, Jesus Christ. And especially verse 10, in a beautiful way, sets that victory before us. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. The God of all grace. This is the God who doesn't just give a little bit of grace. He showers his grace upon his children. And grace is that power, that power that strengthens us in the midst of this world to live not for self, to live for the glory and the honor of God. The God of all grace preserves and keeps his children. And the point of this is that the suffering, the struggles, the temptations are just for a while. They're only for a time. This too is going to pass. And we look forward to that day when Jehovah God will bring his church and his children into the fullness of the perfection that he has ordained. Verse 10 here is not just a prayer. It's a promise from God with regard to his church and his children. And it's a promise that he will keep and preserve his church. And we find those promises all through the Bible. If someday persecution intensifies, we get called before the authorities. They're threatening to kill us. God says, don't worry about what to say. The Spirit will put words in your mouth. I will give you words to speak. And I will equip you so that you will be able to stand before the authorities and you will be faithful. The grace, the God of all grace, will preserve and will keep. And he will do so in such a way that he, notice, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. This is the God who is ordaining all things for the salvation of his church. And as he perfects us in Jesus Christ, as he establishes and strengthens us in our faith, he also settles us. He gives us peace. So that as we go through life, that peace of knowing and believing that all is well and that he is the one who will preserve and keep us is the strength by which we go forward knowing the victory that's ours in Christ, knowing that Jehovah God is faithful, we watch and we're sober and we resist steadfast in the faith, clinging to Christ by a true and living faith. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Our salvation is all for his glory. And that's the emphasis here of this passage. As you walk and as you live through this life, there are troubles, there are trials for a time. But resist, be sober, be vigilant, knowing that Jehovah God is with you and that Jehovah God is preparing you for this glory that awaits in order that all praise, all honor might be directed to him alone for the strength that he has worked in our hearts and in our souls. To him be all the glory. He works in us that acknowledgement. We confess our sins. We see our need for Christ and his atoning work. And he strengthens us to praise him for that glorious grace by which he keeps us and preserves us in the midst of this life. Beloved, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, 
after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, strengthen us and bless us. Grant that we might know the victory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That in this coming week, we might be aware, walking soberly, knowing the attempts of the devil to bring about our destruction, embracing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as our own, and resisting the devil, knowing that thy word and the power of faith are that which send him a flight. We thank thee for the victory that is ours in him. For Jesus' sake we pray.